0: Go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're gonna be in chapter nine, verses 14 through 29. If you don't have a Bible, there's Black Pew Bible that you can use. Um, we got Mark 9, 14 through 29. And this evening, we'll be looking at the account of Jesus casting a demon out of a boy at the bottom of the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, now, this is a rather large portion of scripture for Mark's Gospel. Um, it, it's the biggest portion that we've looked at so far. Uh, generally, you'll remember we've looked at like two to six verses at a time. Uh, but this evening, we're looking at 16 verses in one go. right? And within this long portion of Scripture, there are at least two major points that I can see, along with a handful of minor points to be made throughout. Uh, but that's way too much for one sermon, so I'm not going to attempt it. You're welcome. I would have had you here for two hours probably, and we're not going to do that, um, uh, but instead I'm going to focus on just one big thing this evening, and I, I may come back next week and preach a second sermon from this text, but I, I haven't decided yet, um, but what, what I want to mainly focus on this evening is Jesus' interaction with the possessed boy's father, and I know we've not read the text yet, but you guys already know what I'm talking about, and uh, especially if you've read Mark's gospel before. In the conversation between Jesus and this boy's father, a very famous sentence is spoken by the father. I believe. Help my unbelief. You see, the overarching theme throughout this passage is faith. Right? That, that's what strings everything together in these 16 verses. But in the conversation between Jesus and the boy's father, we, we're going to see the nature of faith and the need for faith. And so... Cat's out of the bag. Here's my summary of what I think that we find in their conversation. Faith is trusting in and depending on God's promises. Or to put it more robustly, faith is trusting in and depending on God's promises, no matter what our present circumstances or feelings tell us is possible. Subtext, if God has said it, he will do it, and we need to believe it and trust that he will. And we will also see, in addition to that, that even weak faith can still be true faith if it has God as its object. That's very encouraging. So I hope to encourage you all this evening. If you're currently struggling to believe or maybe a little bit fuzzy on, you know, what is faith, um, I hope that God encourages you to look to him and believe him. And if you find yourself in in what you think is a hopeless situation, as I, I think many of you might this evening, is from talking with you. My, My prayer is that God would teach you that he is able to help you and that you need only to trust him to do it. So with all that said, please stand with me as a sign of respect for our God, for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw, a great, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you now and ask that you would make us receptive to the word just read, and as it is about to be preached. Open our hearts to learn afresh what it means to believe and grant us faith to believe what is taught. Lord, our faith is a supernatural one. Help us to not be stubborn against what's taught here. Help us to believe. Show us that you are trustworthy. Show us that your promises are true and teach us to have faith. Lord, we pray along with the disciples. Lord, increase our faith. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated all right some some context to get us going um, jesus along with peter james and john his, his innermost circle of disciples those three have been up on the mountain where jesus was transfigured um, and if you don't know what that means, that means that they went up on the mountain and Jesus, the Bible tells us, His face began to shine brighter than the sun and His clothing became dazzling like lightning. And the prophets Moses and Elijah, who had been dead for millennia, show up and they're there next to Jesus talking with Him. And a cloud of the glory of God descends upon the mountain. God the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. It was a glorious moment on the Mount of Transfiguration and these three disciples got to see that. And then on the way down the mountain, there was a hard conversation between Jesus and those three inner disciples about how Jesus's forerunner, John the Baptist, had been rejected and killed and how Jesus himself would be rejected and killed too, but that Jesus would rise from the dead. Now despite that hard conversation and the disciples' inability to grasp the significance of what Jesus had told them. Overall, it had been a glorious experience to see Jesus transfigured. They had had what we often call in Christianese, a mountaintop experience. They had been up in heaven with Jesus, so to speak. But now as they come down from the mountain, it seems as if all hell is breaking loose. And that's where our text begins. Jesus, Peter, James, and John come to the other nine disciples who were not permitted to come up the mountain. And when they get to them, they see that a large crowd has gathered around them and that the scribes are arguing with the nine disciples about something. Now, what are they arguing about? Well, the text doesn't say explicitly, but I think it's pretty safe to assume that it has something to do with the fact that the disciples couldn't cast the demon out of the possessed boy. I think that's pretty reasonable, right? And so the scribes who hate Jesus have decided to capitalize on the opportunity to shame the disciples and discredit the lord jesus right you see in the minds of the scribes the representative of a man is as the man and the disciples represent jesus who casts demons out all the time so they should be able to do the same and the scribes weren't wrong if you'll remember in mark chapter 6 i know it's been like six months or more uh, but in mark chapter 6 we read that Jesus gave the 12 authority over demons to cast them out. And that the disciples were successful in casting out demons when they were sent out on a preaching mission by the Lord Jesus. But they were not able to cast this one out. So the scribes probably, probably began to mock the disciples and blaspheme Jesus in front of the crowd. Right? These disciples are fakes, and their rabbi, who they think is the Christ, is a fake You ought not listen to this jesus right these are a bunch of liars they're blaspheming christ and really mocking the disciples here and the disciples uh, they're, they're being made fools of i imagine because the scribes while they were unbelievers did know the scriptures better than the disciples did at this time right so they're probably just giving it to the disciples in front of this crowd but then jesus comes on the scene And the crowd runs up to him, amazed by his very presence and expecting him to do what his disciples could not. And Jesus comes to his disciples' aid and he confronts the scribes. It says he came to them. I think the them there is the scribes. And he says, what are you arguing about with them? That's a sermon in and of itself. Jesus came to the aid of his disciples and tells the scribes, no, 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 you're talking to me now. (laughs) Leave them alone. And if you notice... The scribes become very quiet. (laughs) It's kind of funny. They don't answer Jesus. He asks a question. They don't answer him. And I think that they don't want to enter into a debate with him. And they certainly don't want to challenge his power to cast out the demon. Right? They've seen how well that challenging the Lord Jesus has worked out for them in the past. And I think that they're a tad gun shy. So the scribes don't answer the Lord Jesus. And the disciples don't answer him either. Right? They're probably ashamed and embarrassed that they could not cast out the demon, even though Jesus had commissioned them to be able to do that back in Mark 6. But then someone breaks the silence and answers Jesus' question, and it's the father of the possessed boy. Let's read verses 17 and 18. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. The man had brought his son to Jesus, and he had brought him in order to have Jesus heal him, obviously. He brought his son to Jesus, believing that Jesus would be able to cast out the demon. That's why he came, remember that. He believed, at least on some level, that Jesus was able to cast this demon out of his son. But what's the nature of the problem? Well, as I've said many times now, I'm laboring the point a bit. The boy is possessed by a demon. And it's especially sad, right, even for a possession. This is especially sad. I'm going to do some summarizing here. When we look at verses 17 and 18, verses 20 through 22, and verse 25, we get the full-orbed picture of the suffering of the child. An evil spirit has taken hold of this boy. And when it decides to act, when it decides to seize upon the boy... It throws him into what looks like what we would call an epileptic seizure. The boy falls down, goes rigid, foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and rolls around on the ground. And if you've ever witnessed someone having a seizure, you know it's awful. It's terrifying. Now, I've only seen videos. I've never been there to see one in person. I hope I never am. But it's a shocking, scary, sad thing to witness. Not only that, but this was demonically induced. The demon would seize him and throw him to the ground and inflict these things on him. So I imagine personally that that these seizures were possibly worse than a, quote, normal, merely physically induced seizure. So you can imagine a bit of the plight of this young man. And there are two things that are good to note at this point. Uh, One, while this looks like an epileptic seizure, and even our translation in the parallel account in Matthew 17 refers to it as epilepsy. um, One, that's not actually the word uh, in in Greek. It's moonstruck is the word uh, in in Matthew 17. Uh, But though this looks like an epileptic seizure, the scripture is clear that this is demonically induced. Right, it's not just a physical issue with his brain. It's not merely a disease. It looks like epilepsy, but the scriptures are very clear, and Jesus affirms it. This is demonic in origin. All right, so that's one thing. Don't try to take the supernatural out of this text. Second, this text does not mean that everyone who has a seizure is possessed by a demon. Amen, Randy? I see you grinning, right? <laughs> not everyone who has a seizure is possessed by a demon. It just means that this boy's seizures and ailments were the result of his being possessed, right? So don't go around trying to cast demons out of everyone you see having a seizure, right? Call the ambulance. Um, But not only the seizures, but this child is also deaf and mute due to the work of this demon. At the minimum, he is struck deaf and mute when the seizures happen. But the text, I think, is telling us that the boy is always deaf and he's always mute, living completely isolated, unable to communicate with even his own father, and prone to these demonic seizures. But even more than that, the demon is actively trying to kill him. The father says that the demon has often cast the boy into fire and into water. Now, in the first century, just think about it, there would have been fires all over the villages. They didn't have electricity, right? There's fires all over the villages and cities in which people lived. And the demon, from what I can gather, would take hold of the boy and throw him in the fire and then cause a seizure so that he couldn't get out in an attempt to burn him alive. Or when the boy was passing by a lake or the sea or a well or any body of water, the demon would throw him in and then cause a seizure so that he couldn't get out. And the boy can't yell for help. He's mute in an attempt to drown him. And to top it all off, In verse 21, the father says, These things have happened to his son since he was a child. Since since he was a little boy, these things have happened to him. And considering, this is my opinion, considering that the text continues to call him a boy probably implies that he's under the age of 13 at this moment. But these things have been happening to him since he was a child, possibly even from infancy. This is horribly sad horribly sad. And and we can't exactly explain how this demon came to possess him, especially at such a young age the text doesn't say, but this is an especially awful situation. I'm sure it seems impossible to the father that anyone could help him. But this father in desperation brought his son to Jesus so that Jesus could heal him and cast out the demon. But Jesus wasn't there when he came, was he? Jesus wasn't there. I'm not, I'm not trying to make any kind of like meta-up point with that. Jesus wasn't there because he was up on the mountain with Peter, James and John, right? He, Jesus has a physical body like us. He's truly human as well as truly God. He was up on the mountain. He can't be in more, place, more than one place at one time in his human nature. So he's not there. So with Jesus absent, the man took his son to the disciples, and much to his sorrow, the disciples could do nothing for him. You can imagine. Just for a moment, how crushed that this man was. How overcome with dread and hopelessness that he would have been. His one hope for his son's healing didn't work. And it was because the disciples couldn't do it. And then Jesus responds to the words of the father in verse 19. And he answered them, "O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus issues a rebuke here full of anguish and, and full of sorrow, right? This is a lament as well as a rebuke. And I say lament because he says, oh, faithless, right? Oh, that's the words of sadness and sorrow. And I believe that it's a rebuke aimed at the disciples since they were the last ones mentioned in the Father's words. I think he's rebuking the nine, right? the nine disciples who, who, who were left down there. Now, this is a tough line to understand, right? Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? This is a tough line to understand, but if I could uh, translate it myself in like my white trash version, I-, I think Jesus means something like this. You disciples, in this moment at least, are just as faithless as the rest of unbelieving Israel. You're just as faithless as the unbelievers you're not acting any different than anyone else. You're not believing anything different than they do. How long am I to be with you and bear with you until you get it? I've been patient. I've taught you. How, what, what, will it, what will it take for you to believe? Jesus had given them authority to cast out demons, but now they couldn't. Now they were powerless to do it. And Jesus accuses them of being faithless. Again, at least in this moment, faithless. So this was a matter of unbelief. In my opinion, uh, this means one of two things that I'm not going to dig in too much. I just want to lay them before you. Their faithlessness means one of two things. One, it could mean that the disciples ceased to believe the promise of Jesus, that they actually had the authority to cast out demons, and so they were faithless with regard to his former promise, and therefore unable to cast out the demon or second I tend to favor this understanding the disciples had become self-reliant in their attempts to cast out the demon why do I say self-reliant well if you look at verse 29 Jesus says this kind only comes out by prayer Jesus says that in response to them asking why couldn't we do it so Jesus is implying that they didn't even pray they did that is they didn't even ask God to help them accomplish the task Now, what does prayer have to do with faith? Prayer is the fruit of faith depending upon God to empower you to do what he has commanded you to do or asking God to do those things that he has promised. So their lack of prayer shows a lack of trust in God, a lack of faith. But regardless of the specifics, Jesus said that in this moment, at least, they were being faithless. They were not trusting in his promises or depending on his power And that tells us that the major theme of this whole passage is faith. And I think that Jesus intends to show his disciples here and us by extension what faith is and what it can accomplish. And he's going to do it through this Father. So Jesus gives a stern rebuke to his disciples, but then he says something beautiful and full of hope. Bring him to me. Bring the boy to me. Jesus is now about to act for this man and his son. The disciples have failed to cast out the demon, but now Jesus is going to fix what they could not. Right, So the spotlight is where it should be now. It's on Jesus. The man brought his son to see Jesus and be healed, and now Jesus says, bring him here. And I want you to see that. This is important. Though Jesus never explicitly says, I'm going to heal your son, it is nevertheless implied, isn't it? Bring him to me. The man came so that Jesus would cast out the demon. And now Jesus says, bring the boy to me. As far as I'm concerned, this is an implied promise. And this is going to be important here in a minute. This is an implied promise. And everyone there would have understood that. We understand that just by reading the text. Jesus is about to heal this child and cast out the demon. He is just as good as promised the man that he's going to do so. And then we read verses 20 through 22. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. The demon, no doubt recognizing the presence of the Son of God, rages and thrashes the boy once more in fierce hatred of both God and man. As I've said before, this is an awful scene. Here is this child, probably less than 13 years old, covered in burn scars, deaf, mute, and having a seizure, completely under the control of this evil spirit. You can imagine the raw fear coursing through all who saw it, but especially the father. You would never get used to this. No matter how many times you had seen it as a parent, you would never be used to this. Especially if you knew it was demonic in origin. This poor boy is completely helpless. But a question arose in my mind as I studied these verses, like the, the, the whole thing, but especially here where, where Jesus asks for some background. My question is this, why does Mark record so much detail about this whole situation? Why? Why does Mark record not only the present seizures, but also the backstory of this happening for years and the demon's attempts to kill the child? And why the repetition, right? So far it seems like the same thing's being said of this child a couple of different times. Why the repetition so far of how bad the situation is? These details don't seem to progress the story. They don't. They they certainly add a human element to it. And, and they no doubt are reflections of Peter's eyewitness account that he has conveyed to Mark. Right, The things he saw, the things he heard. But why all these details? Why did the Spirit of God inspire Mark to record all of this? I think that it's so we can see just how hopeless this whole situation was to the boy's father and to the disciples who were there so that we can get a taste Of how hopeless this is I mean think about it right like if we're gonna be honest we've just learned of this boy and his problem a few minutes ago by my clock 24 minutes ago we learned about this for the first time but this is actually this is history right this isn't a story this has actually been going on for years since his son was a child a little child the father has lived his life in a state of constant worry for his son constantly trying to make sure that he doesn't die at the hands of this demon It's been ongoing. No rest, no peace. And to top it all off, the disciples weren't able to help him. What hope does this man have? The situation seems impossible. It's gone from bad to worse almost. It seems as if this child is destined to one day die because of this unclean spirit. I think we're supposed to get a taste of how the father and this whole situation must have felt hopeless. And helpless. And that's why it's not totally shocking to read what the Father says next. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. There's unbelief in that request, isn't there? Maybe you didn't catch it. If you can, help us. We're not totally shocked by his unbelief. This seems helpless, or rather hopeless. But he had brought his son to Jesus in faith. That's why he came in the first place. He believed that Jesus could help and heal the boy. But now, having seen the failure of the disciples, his faith is shaken. And he begins to wonder if Jesus himself can even do anything to help. His faith is weak. But notice, he still asks Jesus to help him. We're going to come back to that. But Jesus picks up on the unbelief and doubt of this man. And so Jesus says, If you can... All things are possible for one who believes. The Father says, if you can, help us. And Jesus throws his own unbelieving words back at him and says, if you can, right, in less formal English, if this were typed on Facebook, there would be a question mark and an exclamation point next to each other, right? If you can, I think the essence of what Jesus is saying here is, what do you mean if I can? Of course I can heal your son. Of course I can cast the demon out. I'm the son of God. But my ability is not the issue. All things are possible for one who believes. I can do anything. The question is, do you believe that I can? I think that's the essence of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus tells the Father that this seemingly impossible thing, casting out the demon, is absolutely possible if the Father believes that Jesus can do it. So in this instance, follow with me, we see that Jesus is going to do a miracle in response to faith. Now sometimes Jesus does miracles without respect to the faith of the person. Many miracles in the gospel accounts have no reference at all to the faith of the person for whom Jesus does the miracle. But other times, Jesus heals in response to faith. So though Jesus is able, know this, though Jesus is able and free to heal and cast out demons apart from anyone's faith, he often chooses to do it as a response to faith. And this is one of those times. But Jesus tells the man, all things are possible for one who believes. If this man will believe, then his son will be healed and the demon will be gone. Now, this time. I think I need to chase a few rabbits, make a few clarifications, and explain a few things. So dial in with me. First, this is one of the most abused verses in the entire Bible. This verse and ones like it. Some of you are grinning because you knew I was going to clarify this. This is one of the most abused verses in the whole Bible. Many people will take this sentence, all things are possible for one who believes, and they will remove it from its context... And they will say that their wishes will come true if they just believe. And I don't mean to make anyone mad. Usually this is going to be the Pentecostals, the Charismatics, the faith healers that you hear about that are not faith healers at all, but they're charlatans who are going to hell unless they repent. But people will take this and say if they just have enough faith that God will do whatever they believe he will do. If they just have enough faith, they will certainly get whatever they desire. If you just believe hard enough, God must do whatever you ask. And that's not true. It's just not true. Now, Jesus doesn't flesh this out for us here because he's not giving this man a doctoral dissertation on faith and the will of God. This man's son is lying on the ground having a demonically induced seizure. Now is not the time for Jesus to flesh this out in a systematized way. But we have to remember that this verse comes to us in a particular context and also in a larger context of the whole Bible. So we believe in sola scriptura, that is we believe scripture alone is our authority for faith and practice. And we believe in tota scriptura, that is all of scripture must be taken into account whenever we're thinking through doctrine, right? We're just in general. So scripture alone and all of scripture. And in the context of the, larger, or of the Bible itself as a whole, John tells us something important in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. It's important for this issue. John says this, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So then, whatever we ask... In accordance with God's will, we will receive. So our desires, no matter how much we believe they will happen, will only happen if they line up with the will of God. So we must pray and believe like our Lord Jesus, who said in the Garden of Gethsemane, Not my will, Father, but yours be done. So there are certainly restrictions on what we are to believe with certainty will come to pass. In this verse here, Jesus is not giving us a blank check to just believe hard enough and get whatever we want. If that were the case, the world would be a whole lot different. And if you think I'm just trying, because maybe some of you are thinking this, Dave's just trying to explain away scripture because he's reformed and doesn't like charismaticism, right? Fair enough. Uh, But let me ask you some questions if you're thinking that. I said fair enough, because, not because that's what I'm doing, because I don't like charismaticism. Uh, let me ask you a couple of questions if you think that I'm trying to explain away scripture. One, if I just believe hard enough, can I teleport to England right now? Like I'm just, I'm gone. I've always wanted to go to England, visit Spurgeon's church. Second question, if I just have enough faith, will my dead friend come back to life on Tuesday? He's been dead for 13 years, by the way. Will he come back if I just believe hard enough? of course not we all agree that is ridiculous so clearly there are limitations on what Jesus meant here I actually came across a really good thought regarding this subject as I studied this week commentator said this this is good if you take notes write this down whatever goes beyond God's word is not faith but something else assuming its appearance that's good Whatever goes beyond God's word is not faith, but something else assuming its appearance. We are to believe with absolute certainty only those things that God gives to us in the word. To believe that God will certainly do anything that he has not promised in scripture is not faith. It's presumption. To believe that God is certainly going to do something for you that he has not told you in his word he is going to do is presumption it's presuming to tell God what to do and that is blasphemy and so we are only to believe with utter certainty that those things that are promised to us by God in scripture will come to pass anything else is something other than faith now with that said I have to clarify something You need to know that it's okay to ask God to do things that He hasn't promised in Scripture. It's okay for you to ask. It's okay for you to believe that God is able to do something for you or for someone else and then ask Him to do it. That's okay, provided that you submit your request to the sovereign will of God and admit that you do not know what He will choose to do. That's not arrogance. Or presumption. That's humble faith. That's humble faith that God is able, but you just don't know what his will is. That's not arrogance, right? That's pouring out your desires before your heavenly father and then submitting them to his will and plan that you recognize are better than your desires. And he may grant such a request that's offered in humble faith like this. He might do it. And and he will accomplish his secret, sovereign purposes through your petitions and faith in his ability to do all things. So by all means, ask. In humble faith, ask. And believe that he can. If you don't believe that he can, you may as well not ask. Believe that he can, but submit it to his will. But let's put this verse back in context. Jesus has made an implied promise to this man when he said, bring the boy to me. Jesus has effectively promised to heal the boy. And now, as this man doubts whether or not Jesus is able, if you can, right? He doesn't know if Jesus can or not. Jesus says all things are possible for one who believes. Jesus is saying here, do you believe that I can do it? Do you believe I can? I've told you that I can. I've told you that I will. I know it seems impossible to you, but do you believe me? Do you trust me that I can do what I've said I will do? Do you have faith in me? Jesus is going to bring blessing to this man in the context of his faith. And a quick aside here, that's a pretty general principle in the Bible from what I can tell. I'm sure you've seen it too. God communicates blessings to us And he keeps his promises to us through faith. Through our relying on and believing that he will do it. But then that raises a good and hard question for us. Why is God so often pleased to fulfill his word to us in the context of our believing it and trusting him to do it? Why is God so often pleased to fulfill his word to us in the context of our believing it and trusting in him to do it. I think there may be a few answers to this, but the one I'm comfortable saying publicly at this time is this one. God is often pleased to fulfill his promises as we believe so that he gets all the glory. His many blessings are so often communicated to us through faith so that... When we see them come to pass, when we see his promises come to pass, we know that it was God who did it. Think about it. We heard his promise in the word, and we believed it, and we asked him to do what he promised, and then he did it. And so we glory in him for it, and we praise him for it, and we are led to worship him in gratitude because he is the faithful God who keeps his word to us. So it makes sense that he often does things for us in this way. All things are possible for the one who believes. But with this man, Jesus is showing us what faith looks like. Faith is depending on God to do what he has promised. No matter what our situation or feelings dictate to us is possible. That's faith. That's what faith is. And that's what Jesus is calling this man to do. Believe the promise of Christ But now we come to a crucial moment. Will the father believe? Verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's honest. Is it not? That's honest. I think all Christians at different times of our lives pray this way. Unless God gives you a measure of faith that will mark you out in church history, which he does sometimes. This is an honest prayer that all of us pray at some time. The Father declares that he believes. He believes that Jesus is willing and able to do what he has promised. He believes that Jesus can. The first half of his response is full of faith. I believe He really does trust in Christ to do it. He really does believe that he can, but at the same time, he doubts. Help my unbelief. He believes, but his faith is mixed and mingled with doubt. And he wants wants rid of it, doesn't he? He wants rid of his unbelief. So he cries out to Jesus Help me. Help my unbelief. He's asking Jesus to increase his faith. I believe, help my unbelief. He's asking Jesus to remove his doubts so that his faith can be stronger and more resolved in Christ's power and faithfulness. Help my unbelief. Have you ever experienced this? Right, like you can see God's promises to you in scripture and part of you believes them, maybe even a large part of you, but there's still doubt. Maybe, maybe even just a little, there's doubt. And you, and you say to yourself, maybe even subconsciously, can it be true? Can God actually do these things for me? Can he actually help me? Can he truly be for me what he says he can? Can he really save me? Can he really sustain me? Can he really provide for me? And you believe. But part of you doubts. You waver. You go back and forth. You want to be more solid in believing, but you're weak, and so you cry out to God, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. This is honest. This is real life sometimes. Oftentimes. But is this enough? Is that enough? Is weak faith enough? Can can faith mixed with doubt be true faith? Well, if you read on, you see that Jesus goes on to cast the demon out of the boy. So yes, yes, the faith of the father was weak, but it was real. It was weak faith, but it was true faith. When told by Jesus to trust in him, the man responded. It was not perfect faith, but it was real faith. And Jesus was glad to respond to weak faith with great blessing and great help. And this tells us something that is beautiful and encourages us. The power of faith is not found in the strength of our faith or in the believer, but in the object of our faith. The power of faith is not in you or in how strongly you believe, but the power of faith is in the one in whom you believe. The power of faith is in God the one in whom we trust to do what he said. Even the weakest faith is enough because it is tied to the Almighty God. And and, and we certainly want to mature and see our faith grow and and be greater in, in our resolve, but the point is that even weak faith in the Almighty God will bring about amazing things because God is so merciful that he is pleased to do what he has said even for the weakest one who believes. It's not about the strength of our faith. Rather, it is about the greatness of the object of our faith, namely God, who is able to do more than we could ever imagine. And so let me ask you this Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you have faith? Even weak faith? Do you believe the promises of God? Maybe you, like the Father in our text this evening, just feel overwhelmed and defeated for one reason or another, and it has led you to despair of all hope. It's led you to fear. It's led you to forget the promises of God. Maybe your situation, whatever it is, just seems hopeless like the man in our text. But let me encourage you. All things are possible for one who believes. Believe the promises of God revealed to you in His Word. He will keep them. You need only to trust in Him to do it. So let me let me speak very pastorally to you, and it's going to take a minute to get through it. But let me be as pastoral as I know how with this sermon right now. All things are possible for one who believes. Do you worry that you're too sinful to be saved? Hear the promise of God, Romans 10, 14. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's your promise. Anything is possible for one who believes. Believe. It's not about an emotional experience. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust in his promise that he will save you by his life, death, and resurrection. And be saved. Do you worry that you've sinned too much for Christ to keep you? In his grace. You've been converted, but you wonder, can he keep me? Hear the promise of God, John 6 37, all that the Father comes to me or gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Do you find yourself hopeless about financial difficulties that you don't know how you're going to survive? Hear the promise of God, Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things, your needs, will be added to you. Are you hopeless about the future of the world? Hear the promise of God, Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Are you convinced that you'll never be able to kill a certain reoccurring sin in your life? And you think there's just no way I can ever get over it. There's no way I can ever stop this sin. Hear the promise of God. Romans chapter 6 verse 6 and 14. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Sin will have no dominion over you. Believe the promise of God. Do you despair because of your current suffering, whatever it may be? Hear God's promise, Romans 8:28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you worry that you'll never be able to manage the pain of loss or God saying no to your most desired request? Hear the promise of God 2 Corinthians 12 9. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Do you fear that you'll never learn contentment with your present situation? Hear the promise of God. Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's about contentment. Do you wonder if God actually cares about you at all? Do you worry that God doesn't care? Hear the promise of God. Psalm 34.18 The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Do you feel abandoned, forsaken, and lonely? Hopeless. Because you feel as if you have no one. Hear the promise of God, Hebrews fifteen five: I will never leave you nor forsake you. And again, Psalm 27, verse 10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Lastly, are you tired and weary and just feel as if you don't know if you'll have the strength to persevere to the end? Hear the promise of God, Isaiah 40, verses 29 through 31. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Beloved of God, believe God's promises to you just like the Father believed Christ's promise to him and cry out to God in honest prayer, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And he will. And he will. Call to me on the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. He promises to hear and come to your aid because he loves you. And through faith in his word, watch him strengthen you and come to you and do all that he has said. And remember, weak faith is still true faith if it is in God. God is pleased to help his weak children. So believe, even if it's with weak faith. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ, cry out to him, believe his word. And he will help your unbelief. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for the promises, the precious promises towards us in your word that you will take care of us, that you will sustain us, that you will save us, that you will preserve us, that you won't cast us out, that you will provide for us, that you will be there for us. We thank you and we stand amazed and how kind you would be to sinners. Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith, and if we have any unbelieving among us, I pray that you would grant them faith to believe Christ's promise that through his death and resurrection, he will save them if they believe. But Lord, I simply ask on behalf of your people that you would help us to believe and increase our faith. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.